Written in the wake of modern mankind's worst violent cataclysm to date, the Great War, Lothrop Stoddard's The Rising Tide of Color noted the sharp decline of European civilization and the breaking of its dominance over the colored world it had held since the advent of colonialism in the 15th century. Stoddard went on to predict the further deterioration of the white world's relative standing in the years to come as the rise of Asia and the utter annihilation wrought upon Europe in the Second World War paved the way for final decolonization and the rise of a new world order that saw white supremacy and even race-aware thinking such as Stoddard's deemed anathema. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been Hello, welcome to the program. I am Nick, and I am joined by Hank, Hans, and Adam. Hello. Full house. Hey, guys. Hi, guys. My, uh, hopefully my audio issues have been fixed. I apologize for the, uh, the last episode. I'm sure it'll be... Uh, well, I'm not sure of anything, but uh, we'll make it work. So I think today what we're going to do is get into a little bit of, uh, you know, good old-fashioned race hate. And and I think some we've had some people um, uh, wonder whether or not uh, we're going to talk about uh, the race problem. So we're going to talk a little bit about the race problem today. And in the context of that, uh, we'd like to do a little discussion about uh, our man Goddard. Well, let me thank a couple of donations uh, before we jump in. Uh, there were two uh, since the last time I thanked anyone for this from Bitcoin. Uh, the first one was the wallet starting with the characters 1FSI, if I'm reading that right. The second one is from the wallet starting with characters 1Z, or excuse me, 17ZC. So thank you to both of you guys. And if anyone in general, has donated on Bitcoin, please just email uh, myth20c at tutanoted.com. If they would like a copy of Exit Strategy, I'd be happy to send that to you. And uh, if you haven't received a copy and you've donated in other ways and there's any issues, you can also email there and I'll, I'll figure it out. Okay, so Nick, please uh, please proceed. Back to you. Well, I, th- I think that there's, a, there's an important tradition of... Uh, race thinking in America that I don't think gets a lot of attention, uh, mainly because it's something that I was, of course, uh, treated as, you know, the, some of these guys who are writing in the early 20th century that they're, they're seen now as, I guess, cranks or, you know, lunatic uh, KKK people or something. And I mean, in reality, I mean, someone like Stoddard was, I mean, he was immensely popular in his day and age. And well translated several different languages well well known on the speaking circuit so to speak a apparently popular he journalist got uh, i don't know what status i guess it was a press pass but he got access to some of the high command in germany 
during the war, uh, or prior to the war between Germany and the United States, at least, but during Germany's war, he actually wrote a book about that uh, Into Darkness. It's quite good, actually, a very interesting perspective on what wartime yeah, his, Germany was, was like. He inter- interviews uh, Goebbels and mm-hmm. uh, Himmler. Right. It's it's very interesting, actually. It's, it's And that's the other, that's kind of the explanation, the mainstream explanation that you're going to see for why he kind of fell out of favor. I, I made the, the Gatsby illusion earlier, which you'll probably see whenever you really read into him, because that's sort of the... One place he's still in kind of popular consciousness because that's a that's a book that you know the children do read still I think and so it is that has to be ex- the context of that has to be explained and but they'll say that the reason that he's out of fashion as Madison Grant is that uh, his association with National Socialist Germany one of the main reasons and that's actually something to be, we can discuss here it's just the reason why. He kind of got swept under the proverbial uh, ash bin of history. And I mean, there's the obvious reasons. Of course, the fashionable Jewish sociologists really started to have their ascension around the time that he died. Um, So, you know, this is not something that anyone wanted anybody looking at. And there was no real obvious successor to someone like Stoddard, no one who was allowed to become as popular and who was as well read and making very simple points, many of which were very prophetic. I mean, he, most of what he predicted has come to pass. I mean, we were living in the world that he saw coming in, you know, the early 1920s. Yeah. I, I noticed that as well. I mean, a hundred years, uh, I, I hesitate to call it, uh, like a genius insight because, you know, we're, we're just, I consider us fairly normal people, despite what the media might want to portray some of us as, but, uh, you know, he was writing this 100 years ago and obviously no access to the internet, no YouTube, no whatnot to get easy information at the click of a button. Uh, but he was amongst uh, some of the elite intellectuals of his time. Uh, he was a professor at Harvard, uh, at least he had gone to Harvard, one of the two. Uh, and he, had so, a, he had a PhD in history from Harvard. Right, okay. So clearly, and especially at that time, that was that was truly exceptional because there were very few people going to college, let alone to Harvard back then. And so that was, I think, rightly uh, a, a, a mark of a superior intellect. And some of his work is actually focused on the eugenics of actually uh, intel- intellectuals in society and sort of the problems uh, inherent in mass democracy and giving power to people who basically just click... Uh, click for more Gibbs, essentially, and then it, it degenerates the, the, the whole of society. But he was talking about this long before a lot of us in this thing have been talking about it. And so he, he deserves a lot of credit for that, uh, I believe. And I, I did I did pick up on that, like you, Nick, that he was somewhat prescient in predicting uh, where, where our sort of society would, would go. But one of the things also that I was thinking about was maybe it was one of the questions I had was why was he talking about this? Because he was basically highlighting the, the transformation of, I think, Europe essentially after the First World War. It was basically the war that broke colonialism, I think. The empires of Europe were basically so strained and broken after that war, and that the decolonization movements obviously picked up heavily after the Second World War, but I think Gandhi was was doing his thing after the First World War. And so that may have been what he was noticing. And what he predicted, though, was in terms of the, the racial makeup of the world population, at the time, 100 years ago, believe it or not, one-third of the world was 
actually of European descent. Uh, and he was noticing that that was starting to, uh, to ebb and it, it was going to, going to decline. And he was right about that today. I think the European population as a percentage of the entire world population is probably around 10%, maybe a little bit more, but, uh, it's a substantial decrease from where it was. And so it really was kind of the pinnacle and then the, the beginning of the decline. And he, he predicted that fairly correctly, which was impressive. Well, he, so there's a couple of things to, to add there. So he's, mostly thought of just as some eugenicist right and that really wasn't i mean he was a historian and he was really a geopolitical theorist before anything else i mean he was looking at the world situation and he was looking at the world situation very similar to someone like oswald spangler was looking at the world situation he was seeing in the war the great suicide of, of western civilization and the consequences of for example of of what white rule had brought in its own undoing to the rest of the world, the, the you know proverbial Pandora's box of technology and the what the extent to which the masses, the colored masses, were becoming based, they were becoming politically aware. And he was that's another observation. I'll, I'll actually read a few things that he has to write about this because he described, for example, the the first European war. Uh, he drew the analogy to the uh, to the Peloponnesian War, and so he writes. Uh, and Europe is the white homeland, the heart of the white world. It is Europe that has suffered practically all the losses of Armageddon, which may be considered the white civil war. The colored world remains virtually unscathed. Here is the truth of the matter. The white world today stands at the crossroads of life and death. It stands where the Greek world stood at the close of the Peloponnesian War. A fever has racked the white frame and undermined its constitution. The unsound therapeutics of its diplomatic practitioners retard convalescence and endanger real recovery. Worst of all, the instinct of race solidarity has been partially atrophied. Grave is, is the situation and is not yet irreparable, any more than Greece's condition was hopeless after agostopomy. It's not the Peloponnesian War which sealed Hellas' doom, but the cycle of political anarchy and moral chaos which the Peloponnesian War was merely the opening phase. Our world is too vigorous for even the great war of itself to prove a mortal wound. The white world thus still has a choice, but it must be a positive choice. Decisions, firm decisions must be made. Constructive measures, drastic measures must be taken. Above all, time presses and drift is fatal. The tide ebbs. The swimmer must put forth strong strokes to reach the shore, else swift oblivion in the dark ocean. I think it's interesting that when he's talking in the context of post-World War One, it's not just uh, post-World War One. You saw kind of the first inklings of this when the Japanese soundly um, beat what was more or less a European power, Russia, in uh, 1905 or 1904, I guess. And I don't actually think he's that incorrect in kind of uh, attributing... Um, the uh, the rising tide of color, um, so to speak, um, at least some of it to uh, the uh, the double immolation of Europe in World War One, of course, and then again uh, after he was sort of uh, his a uh, you know more uh, more popular initial or foundational works uh, in World War Two, that seems to have been like a a defined uh, trend and not just kind of like in the macro level, but it seemed as though there was a conscious effort on parts of the 
uh, the broader Anglosphere, uh, notably the United States, um, to kind of assist in that effort to actually use these uh, internecine uh, conflicts to uh, have kind of this more uh, equitable, I don't, I don't know what would be period appropriate uh, phrasing of this, but you know, a flatter uh, Thomas Friedman-esque uh, world where naturally these ex-colonies will become independent and ascend to uh, proper nationhood uh, and the Congo will become Belgium or whatever. Yeah, what, what, what is interesting, I mean, he, he also makes another point that is very very similar to what Spengler would say, which is the, the use of colored auxiliaries, colored mercenaries in that European war was politically fatal for exactly these same reasons because it awakened in them a political consciousness and also showed to them the weakness of the white man's world the extent to which you know there was blood in the water basically and by putting rifles in their hands and using them against other european powers it was a, a breaking in the implicit white solidarity that had existed prior to the war i mean you sure you had little colonial scuffles here and there and you know typical you know ancient rivalries but it wasn't anything on the scale of the the annihilation that took place there how, how new and how significant was that because if you go back to the revolutionary times in the united well not the united states the colonies of england and, and france uh the conflicts between uh the french and english was fought oftentimes with a lot of uh, indian mercenaries native american mercenaries whatever you want to call them the tribes they were given rifles. well he would call them the red man right Right, and so they they were doing that 400 years ago, and I don't know to what degree that was uh, making up the percentages of the armies that were fighting each other. In World War One. my impression was that the colonial uh, recruits, mercenaries, whatever they're called, uh, from India, for example, fighting on the British side were fairly insignificant, but I, I could be totally wrong about that. I don't know what the numbers well, the are. Fr the French used, the French used uh, the coloreds and the occupation of German lands. Right. And they did that on purpose. Uh, and this was something that inf inflamed the, tension. Yeah, that, that's more of a nations. political right, move, the, but in terms of just the military well, that's the point, numbers. That, yeah. that they're being used in a political struggle like that. I mean, mm -hmm. sure, there's nothing entirely novel about foreign mercenaries being used, but the extent to which they were being used and deployed on European soil was definitely a, a new development. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, to Hank's uh, comment about I think you you were saying America would sort of join the side of the, the anti-colonialist and, of course, the longstanding antipathy between the United States and England and, by extension, the colonial powers of Europe sort of makes that make some sense. And then the implicit motivation there is that America would then sort of take over or the system of America would take over seems to have come true. Um, and then... Well, that, that's one thing mm -hmm. he did not... Foresee was right. he he did right. not understand that American power would be used the extent to which American power would come to be used against the old colonial yeah, empires. You're right. He didn't. That, that, that was one thing that he did miss. He, he did because mention I, he was Japan much of a, a man lot. of his class and time. He was an American through and mm -hmm. through, which gave certain strengths as far as his ability to look past some of the petty rivalries that were going taking place in Europe and be able to see them in the context of the world race situation. Mm -hmm. And I think I think that him being an American helped and be able to do that. However, at the same time, I don't think he quite understood what American power was about to be used for. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think too many people did. Um, he, he did mention last thing I'll say about, uh, 
some of his writings on kind of the predictions. And some of this obviously came true and it was, it was taking hold at the time, but it, it had not fully manifested itself. Japan was obviously the rising power in Asia. And so he was comparing, making a lot of comparisons between the different races. Obviously the Africans and Europeans are quite different. And he's talking about the Arabs sort of being a blending or transit transitionary area between Africa and the rest of the world. Uh, and then he was highlighting how Japan had sort of taken the lead of Asia, but he'd predicted again, somewhat correctly that the population numbers of Japan compared to the other mainland powers like China just could not sustain that. But he, he mentioned also that the Japanese were also taking full advantage in addition to the Americans to a degree of the fact that the European colonial powers were breaking apart after the war and Japan was trying to fill that void. And they were using similar rhetoric to almost what you could envision either maybe a communist or a free worlder uh, in the Cold War using to kind of grab the attention of the third world. And basically Japan was saying, you know, we will, we will take on the responsible mantle of the, 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 they try to tiptoe around the fact that they're tr they're going to effectively be the leader, but what they're offering is an escape from the quote-unquote oppressiveness of the European. And what Stoddard says, though, is that the Asian is actually much more brutal in nature than the European, and that was also proven out quite a bit uh, over the next 30 or so years, especially during the war in uh, Japanese-occupied areas, the Japanese occupation of Manchuria and Korea, were particularly brutal. And then also uh, the prisoners of the Japanese were treated quite harshly as well. And so and he, he was right in pointing that out. Yeah, you don't even need to look forward. You can look back to uh, you know China basically killing off a third of their population every hundred years in these massive, massive uh, peasant rebellions or you know rebellions of various stripes, dynastic conflicts. Like most of their deaths have been uh, internal in nature, and they're just astounding. And the, uh, I mean, the uh, was it the uh, the Tang Rebellion? Uh, it was like coincident with the U.S. Civil War, so it was within living memory for uh, people who would have been alive at Stoddard's time, and that that was like tens of millions of deaths. Yeah, he he also saw that the race character that Asiatic Bolshevism would take on because he, he saw that it would, it would end up appealing to the colored, the various colored peoples and use that as a wedge against the white world, which is again, exactly what happened. What, what was his um, motivation in all this? Do you think Nick, I mean, was he just concerned for the culture and the people dying. Did he have some sort of grand worldview of what things should he be? His, he like he was... saw a civilizational crisis, dude. He saw he mm -hmm. saw the end of end of Western civilization. Sort of like Spengler. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he saw that this was this was basically it. Like, mm -hmm. if if this if the problems that were unleashed in the early 20th century were not properly dealt with, then yeah, we would we would be wiped out. And it, it would be the, it would be yeah. the yellow man and the brown man. Uh, not that's that's one of the interesting things when you talk about Stoddard in an American in context you, where you see like system publications write about him, you see that typical American obsession with the Negro. I mean, Americans are just they they they're fucking obsessed with the Negro. Uh, it, it's he was he, basically his view of this was like the the Negro is is more or less unimportant. 
and it's the real issue yeah. is, is uh, the Asiatic world. And the and the brown word. He was also a scholar of Islam, and he says at one point, I don't have the exact quote on. Oh, him, the, the numbers that he cites for the population of the Arab world is unbelievable. If you if you know how much it's it's exploded since then. But he was talking about like tens of millions of people in the Arab world. We're talking about billions now. I mean, it's it's getting insane how much they they've replicated. <laughs> to use a crude term, but um, just you know, talk about a rising tide. I mean, that that part of the oh. world is incredibly. Uh, multiplicative yeah he was a he was a scholar of islam uh, and so he that was another thing that he was way ahead of the curve on understanding which is the rise of you know pan-islamic uh, fanaticism and he said so he says i did find the relevant quote so he says he's talking about the threat the military threat of the colored uh so in the case of like actually bringing arms to bear and he, he's summarizing that such he says the colored the colored peril of arms may be thus summarized the brown and yellow races possess great military potentialities. These, barring the actions of certain ill-understood emotional stimuli, are unlikely to flame out in spontaneous fanaticism. But on the other hand, they are very likely to be mobilized for political reasons like revolt against white dominion or, or for social reasons like overpopulation. The black race offers no real danger except as a tool of pan-Islamism. As for the red men of the Americas, they are of merely local significance. Yeah, that I mean, sums it up pretty much. I mean, the 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 plight of the American Indian has uh, basically they just they vanished. I mean, they're 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 probably even less of a factor now than they were back then. Even though the mo the majority of the Indian wars have had been resolved for decades at that point when he was writing this. Well, I, I believe he would he would probably be referring also the to the Indians of Latin of Latin America. Yeah, he does he does highlight them as being basically the the bulk of where any of any of their sort of advancement is going to come from because the the sort of plains indians the northern indians uh have really just disappeared and they they never really had much history of any true in terms of like city building they never had civilization in that sense and so he does look to some of the developments of central americans especially uh, in in the past as sort of their cultural heritage but he doesn't see much evidence of that today interestingly enough um and so the, the theories that he gets into of like the evolution of the different races is quite interesting to me because obviously genetics had not really been developed in the 20s. That was more of a 1950s thing. And so his predictions about, you know, where kind of the different races had evolved from are you know, more or less, you know, in the ballpark, especially, you know, given sort of a uh, grading on the curve sort of thing for a guy who doesn't have access to the information that we do. Uh, but there were there were some some I think things that were wrong. I mean I think uh, and th this is still debated today for obvious reasons. But the people in India, for example, that he cited, there there is a, a huge difference between just the physical appearances of the northern and southern Indians. The southern being much more uh, dark skinned, which you, you know you could ascribe to obviously the climate and the, the sun exposure levels. Uh, but he basically traces their sort of development to having a lot of African blood and, and some of the genetic uh, tracing that has been done, you know, after he's done his writing and access that that science being even developed has shown that that may not actually be accurate. It was sort of a co-development in the different regions. But nonetheless, more or less, you know, I think fairly in the ballpark, if you're kind of a fan of uh, uh, Cochrane's writings, he'd probably be someone that Cochrane could have some respect for yeah i think back also to the point about people focus again on the negro especially americans 
I, I'm not exactly sure what the reason for the American obsession with the Negro is. I, well, they're here. I have a few things I could. Like, yeah, I mean that's not only are they here, but if you look at kind of the people of the intellectual caste in the 1920s, like there was kind of a Southern intellectual tradition, and it's not just that they're here. It's like that was a that was a primary problem of Southern uh, intellectual thinking. And it doesn't suffice to say like, well, they're not relevant because like we could simply kill them all. Like that's not going to be a good idea. That doesn't comport with the fact that the U S is actually is a liberal society. Uh, Like that would be, that would be insane and absurd. So the question is, how do you, actually live along with these people given that they have approximately as much you know, claim to be American in whatever sense you're going to construct American uh, to mean uh, as anybody else on the continent. Uh, how do you live with them despite the very clear and obvious differences and, you know, the, the manifest failure of a lot of uh, past experiments in uh, how exactly to manage that relationship. So, I mean, it's, like it's a question. It's not something that um, Stoddard uh, deals with in depth. Like that's not his thing, and it's probably something that kind of uh, you know lacks uh, global world historical uh, significance. Uh, but I mean, it's it's a thing. Oh, it's a, it is a thing. It's just that that's exactly my point. Is that when he's talking about the world situation and you know projecting out into the future. Looking at the race question generally, it's the first what is American critics or Jewish critics in particular, what they're going to say is like, oh, well, it's it's you hate the Negro and you think the Negro is inferior. And I guess this leads us into the uh, famous it's also they're they're used as an avatar because it's so clear that they are so incredibly uh, distinct. Like, I think if you look at, uh, you know, even if you get quantitative you don't need to, but you can. And you look at things like, uh, you know, genomic or ancestral differences. You you'd have to go to Australia and you know look at uh, look at Aborigines um, before you found um, somebody who is clearly more distinct than that. Like you know, high caste Indians they can get along like Chinese people. You know, the Hapa is like a meme, but. It's uh, it serves as a very useful rhetorical device uh, to have uh, to have them around to point at uh, as kind of the the avatar of otherness to point out how much uh, these dastardly racists hate the other, which is a very paradoxical thing to do, of course, um, especially when uh, they're not exactly very good at uh, sort of seizing the initiative rhetorically and uh, claiming. Uh, to advocate on their own behalf. They're much more useful as that sort of a prop uh, if you have a mind towards dominating one segment of the population rhetorically. Yeah, and that brings us to his debate with W.E.B. Du Bois, which was a, it was kind of a cartoonish affair as far as you can tell. I, I've had trouble finding exact transcripts of it, but I've, so I don't have any, anything too juicy to read. I can, we can put up, if you're watching the slideshow, the, the advertising poster for it, which is pretty funny, actually. It uh, presents the question as whether, whether it is the Negro should be encouraged to seek cultural equality with the white man. 
as well as uh, like, I guess secondary like bro, content. you can seek whatever you want. Like go for it. Push the envelope. But should we he be encouraged? And that 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 is embedded with so much uh, power and and implies so much about what America really is and how it regards the the black race. It's it to me as if I was a, a black person, I would find that insulting. I would not want someone to encourage me to behave like what they expect me to behave. I would want to do whatever I thought was appropriate yeah. for me. It's That's, it's nice white lady mindset. Exactly. Yeah. And it's exactly. like, oh, you just need you need a nice white lady to, you know, really encourage you to explore your artistic ambitions. Maybe make a rap song. That's what you guys like do, to do, right? Do, do you think that we could say that a lot of this is really being debated right before the you know, I don't know, a couple of decades before the civil rights movement because no one really knew what to do with blacks after the Civil War. There, I think that there were the there were a lot of the Civil oh, Rights Movement that yeah. succeeded was just the last in a string of you know also things that could also be qualified as uh, civil rights movements. There was right. a there was a ton of black activism going from I mean especially in kind of this uh, this time period post uh, World War One. But I mean, it, it's it was not exactly uh, like the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s did not propose some kind of uh, radical new uh, accommodation or arrangement so much as it proposed just the destruction of existing ones. Uh, so I mean, it 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 well, wouldn't. My, I think my my the point I was trying to make was that is this really just I mean Lothrop's daughter was essentially uh, a wasp right from from New England oh yeah or just from the northeast of the country I think he was like Dutch or something I'm not sure what the name uh, he says it in one of his books I just forget but it was somewhere around there okay but he, he's I mean he's in with these wasp circles he's he's spending a lot of his time in northeast he dies in in dc or the dc area i think and this seems to me like it his a lot of his view is probably very widely held at the time it's very poignant to us now but it was probably a widely held view or at least part of the dialogue like considered part serious part of the dialogue of you know what exactly do we do with this element in our society i mean nick you're saying that basically you know the basic theory you take from this is that america is obsessed with the negro and i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that you know a huge chunk of american history has even up to this point was centered around this question of what do we even do with these people like they became such an integral part of the like the di- the political dialogue that kind of filtered down into other elements of life in america that it was always inevitable i think that it was going to come down to this because no other country had this long-standing sustained slave population that they had freed and were now sort of trying to participate and were causing problems no one really knew what to do with this so there were no great historical examples to to work from and i think that's that was where the obsession stemmed really from basically that no one knew where to look and lothrop's daughter was trying to i think formulate this new theory of basic you know very basic fundamental racialism which is that they're just not like us and they really they really shouldn't be here or if they are here they should not be part of our 
own in-group society. They should be doing their own thing. Yeah, he yeah, talks a lot about nature-versus-nurture, kind of nurture, and he, he ascribes took, most of it to hereditary traits. Being what you would call, a, a, I believe you would say, the bi- like the biracialist position at the time, which is basically yeah, just I mean, separate but equal is the idea as far as it goes. Like That was one of the things that they were debating J- Jim Crow uh, in, in his debate with Du Bois. Jim, Jim Crow is brought up and the the Jewish publications that are writing about that in retrospect say that, you know, as like the room erupted with laughter when he said, well, you do have like the goal is to ensure that you have, you know, facilities that are uh, for your own. And, you know, it's uh, it's uh, equal. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> which I guess there is kind are, of funny there in are, retrospect, but there are examples in history of doing that where you do create these kind of bifurcated societies. I mean, uh, whenever France was not actively purging religious, I guess, minorities from the country, particularly Jews, Protestants, Huguenots, whatever, they did this thing where they would essentially establish, allow the establishment and and on and purposefully establish separate institutions, separate facilities, separate areas, just for those people, just to kind of you know keep their own population from getting too wild and, and maybe killing them all. And trying to keep everyone kind of separated so that there were no long-standing issues and that they didn't impact the, the larger functioning of the country. They had their own institutions. Um, and ironically, you can also look at Quebec in Canada. I think honestly that if you asked, if you asked Lothrop Stoddard, you know, if you, if you were alive today and you showed him basically the arrangement that the Quebecois have with the Canadian government and you said maybe, you know, would something like this with maybe even slightly more autonomy satisfy your, your, you know, your constraints here? And I think he would say, yeah, they, you know, they have their own area where they speak their own language. They have their own laws. They have their own court charters. They have their own everything. I mean, that, I think that he was, he was not like a racial supremacist or a eugenicist as much as he was just trying to solve this, long-standing implacable problem in america what do you do with the blacks in america because they're not going this is not going to end pretty and everyone could kind of tell it was not going to end well but no one really knew what to do other than i guess people like sanger who he was associated with who wanted to like euthanize the population slowly euthanize them uh and then there on the other side there were people who wanted to slowly integrate them but wanted to kind of placate the separationists, um, I'm sorry, the segregationists, and allow for this sort of dual system where they get to vote, they get to participate uh, in the wider society, but they got to like live in their own area. They got to go to their own schools. I think that Stoddard like just wanted them to have their own land and just they run that and we run everything else. Well, it's the question of supremacy is interesting because the book, the book I've been quoting for at length is the most famous book, The Rising Tide of Color. The full title of it is The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy. And the thing about that is white world supremacy was just a fact. I mean, to a certain right. extent, I guess it still is a fact. I mean, it much less so. But I mean, the, the existing civilization of, of the time, to the extent it still exists now, uh, was European civilization. And the extent to which... You know, you had coloreds participating in, in the expanses of that in, in the colonies or 
they themselves, the, the rapid industrialization of Asia was a result of white world supremacy. I mean, it's political, territorial, and technological supremacy. I mean, that that's it was just a fact. It's and more it, like white man's burden than I think like pro-slavery. He saw it, he saw it more as well. We kind of run the planet. <laughs> Well, he wasn't because, a southern. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, that, and that's what's even more curious is that he's basically taking a sort of pseudo southerner position, but he's not advocating. I don't think he ever really advocated a return to slavery, or uh, you know, not only did he not advocate a return even, to slavery, and when you're talking about as far as li- how to manage living with a uh, with a with a, a lower population in your midst or trying to rule over them, I mean, he was just acutely aware of this problem. This was his his first book, which I think grew out of his thesis from Harvard, was his uh, The Revolution in San Domingo, where it's about the what happened when the Haitian mulattoes rose up and slaughtered all the Frenchmen. And he saw it as he saw right. the mulattoes there as the great danger too, because the mulattoes were the ones who had enough, you know, ability to agitate the, you know, full blown Negroes into uh, you know, committing a mass slaughter. So he was well aware of, of this problem. And as far as uh, the rest of it goes as far as solutions. I could read it's in his sort of conclusion in uh, the Rising Tide. He has uh, this in his reflections. Basically, this is in the twenties as to what should be done with the world situation. This is what he has to say. He says first and foremost, the wretched Versailles business will have to be thoroughly revised. As it stands, dragon's teeth have been sown over both Europe and Asia, and unless they be plucked up, they will presently grow a crop of cataclysms which will seal the white world's doom. Secondly, some sort of provisional understanding must be arrived at between the white world and the renaissance Asia. We whites will have to abandon our tacit assumption of permanent uh, domination over Asia, while Asiatics will have to forego their dreams of migration to white lands and penetration of Africa and Latin America. Unless some such understanding is arrived at, the world will drift into a gigantic race war, and genuine race war means war to the knife. Such a hideous catastrophe should be abhorrent to both sides. Nevertheless, Asia should be given clearly to understand that we cannot permit either migration to white lands or penetration of the non-Asiatic tropics, and that for these matters we prefer a fight to the finish rather than yield to a finish, because our finish is precisely what surrender on these points would mean. Thirdly, even within the white world, migrations of lower human types like those which have worked such havoc in the United States must be rigorously curtailed. Such migrations upset standards, sterilize better stocks, increase lower types, and compromise national futures more than war. Get on uh, earlier, which is another very pressing observation, which he saw in the future sort of world struggle. He saw Asia penetrating into Africa and Latin America, which today is exactly what we see. Well, you know what that reminds me of? Uh, of all people, we need to do a show on him specifically, but that reminds me of Henry Kissinger. Uh, in the uh, the sort of early 2000s, uh, he went through a uh, a phase where he was writing heavily and actually doing a lot of uh, travel and speaking, uh, promoting the idea that essentially the U.S. and China should come up with some sort of a uh, understanding whereby they would basically split up the world uh, between them to avoid the traditional conflicts that arise between a, uh, a rising power uh, and an existing uh, hegemon. And he, he duplicates a lot of the uh, the uh, the sort of prescription uh, in that regard. 
Um, I don't know how much I would not this... be. I would not be shocked if if Kissinger is at least familiar with Stoddard. He definitely I wouldn't, would I be. Would, yeah. I definitely. I mean, if you have to look at the time he was uh, basically in school, um, you know, I think he basically came back from World War II and immediately became sort of like a. Or immediately, I remember reading his he, biography. He was an officer basically. of the occupation of Germany. Right. Uh, that's what his job was. And he, he, was right. a, he was a keen reader of this kind of stuff before, well, before the war. He, you know, he was like, he was always into politics and, um, you know, books on economics and so on. And he immediately went back to studying after he got back from the war and I think in 46. And so I wouldn't be shocked if he... I know. I mean, we know that he's read some very kind of risque or obscure writers um, in his time. He's he's probably read just about everything when it comes to politics. So, what you're saying that he's basically taking the Stoddard thesis. It, it's more than likely true that he just read Stoddard's books, or he was at least someone talked to him who had read them, and it was part of some discussion he was in in his kind of formative years. That's totally possible. You know, and, and because rather, he during in during his time when he was kind of running around the world as as Nixon's Secretary of State, he uh, he made some like very casual statements where he basically kind of proclaimed that there was this, and uh, and several Russian premier uh, or Soviet premier said the similar thing where there was a sort of sameness between the Soviets and the Americans, and that and it basically just boiled down to like well there's a common like European white element here and we should probably, you know, endeavor to work together because we can at least understand each other a little bit more than perhaps other powers can, you know, we can understand other powers like India or China. The, the ironic thing about Kissinger though, is that he was on the tip of the spear, uh, to use the cliche of opening up relations between China and the United States. And obviously that was, because of the, the height height of tensions of the Cold War, trying to break up the uh, Sino-Soviet that, alliance, well, a, lot of, but, a lot of that had to do with a lot of that. I think had to do more at the time with Vietnam and how Vietnam was imploding, and Nixon and Kissinger basically wanted a way out. Mm-hmm. And originally, they thought that That's the best way out was to get get the Chinese to help out and kind of transition. That, that's true. That ended up not happening. And, it, it was and also I they. Yeah, I mean. For, it yeah. was for the domestic audience, yes. It was also to help right, with the war, right. but it was also for the grander strategy of the Cold War, which, you know, in the short run, it, it made a lot of sense. But And I do give him some credit for pointing this out in the early 2000s. But, I mean, at this point, I mean, the the rise of China has been such a problem for, the, frankly, the entire Western world. Uh, I do not well, give him not a lot just... of respect for doing what he did back then. With well, the, and the distinction is between like a, a cooperative uh, divvying up process versus some uh, attempt at mm. uh, containment or subversion, right. or to uh, actually try to prevent that rise by force. That's the the two kind of intellectual strains uh, on the uh, on the right with regard to China. Well, and so Stoddard's position Nick, on this I, would have been that he would like to have seen or basically a strategic retreat from Asia uh, that by continuing to, you know, engaging imperialism and colonialism in Asia, Asia you're just uh, adding more resentment and tension that 
will lead to the Asiatics coming into white controlled lands. So he and would say, you know, our race duty the is there for clear. The French did. Yeah. I mean, well, the, the, the French, when things got really bad in Vietnam at the end of the 50s and early 60s, the French just left. Like they didn't, they didn't even want to fight really hard for it. There was an opportunity where they could have. I think that if they had committed 200,000 troops and they just didn't care what anyone had to say and they kind of you know, just brutally killed everyone in North Vietnam, they could have held on to it, but they basically decided it wasn't worth it. And it was better to just kind of pull out and they saw Britain pulling out of India and pulling out of a lot of uh, into other parts of Indochina and you know, kind of leaving behind their their air, their positions in China and, you know, like it, I think that everyone in the 60s was basically under the impression that this, this game is over and it's time to just kind of to move on. I, I think around the same time you, you, you saw like the French basically working in behind the scenes to leave Algeria and everyone was sort of trying to find ways. Yes, yeah, that should have been held, out and that's of, exactly the point. Like Algeria should have yeah. been held, North Africa should have been held, and he, Stoddard would agree insofar as he would say probably uh, he would take a position actually somewhat similar to the fascists like Mosley, and he would say that the exterior areas of the white world should be concerned about that aren't the immediate white homelands would be North Africa and the Latin America. Those should be the two areas of focus, and basically let let, let the Asiatics have Asia. Well, that was a question I had, and I, I'm not familiar with this, but did Stoddard ever even write about Latin America? Yeah. Yeah. Was yeah, that yeah, ever talking like about prescient that. in his in his writings? Yep. Yeah, he uh, that was one place, for example, one thing he would say about Latin America was that um, it's kind of the uh, the exception that proves the rule as far as the one of the few places where you had more recent white expansion into uh, yeah, more places or less. like Uruguay, which are yeah. majority. European. Which are, by the way, Uruguay apparently is very, uh, very white. Oh yeah, look at their soccer yeah. team. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so are parts of like Argentina and Chile are, are really, really white. So, I mean, I, I think another question I would have is, did Stoddard predict the Asiatics getting into Latin America? Because yes. basically, the other, the other side of the world that China yeah, has talks about attempted Japan to infiltrate. Yes, Japanese he were did. The, That's uh, ex- he he absolutely predicted that. Uh, that th- yeah, that that was another thing that was very, but very it, much it ahead of his time. Like most of his uh, predictions are in terms of population migration, not so much uh, the neo-colonial, neoliberal economic colonialism, which we've seen much more of, I think, in our time. Whereby you don't necessarily have to move your population to control a country; you basically just control the banking system and you control the the free trade and foreign policy regarding economics, uh, and you have access to your multinationals that way. We're seeing a lot of that going on everywhere. Uh, and how do you account for that in his terms? I don't think you do. I think he's thinking in terms of more of like people where they live, and that's yep. that's how he I, does. I it. have an appropriate quote for this too. So, also rising tide. But the matter does not end here. There, sorry. The matter does not end there. The white world also cannot permit with safety to itself wholesale Asiatic penetration of non-Asiatic colored regions like black Africa and tropical Latin America. To permit Asiatic colonization and ultimate control of these vast territories with their incalculable resources would be to overturn in favor of Asia the political, the economic, and eventually the racial balance of power in the world. At the present, the white man controls these regions, and he must stand fast. 
No other course is possible. Neither black Africa nor mongrel rural tropical America can stand alone. If the white man goes, the Asiatic comes, browns to Africa, yellows to Latin America, and there is no reason under heaven why we whites should deliberately present Asia with the richest regions of the tropics to our own impoverishment and probable undoing. This is not like 1920. I mean, like this man does really does not get the credit he deserves. So how, let's talk about that. How was his perception reception in the United States, his home country? Best-selling author. But how did, how did the cathedral or the synagogue, as you'd like to put it, regard him? That's kind of where I'm, where I'm getting at. It's like the, yeah. the establishment. Well, the, I mean, the, all the Jew papers, he was, him. okay, so he was published by Schreibner's, um, which might have also had something to do with the fact that he did not really have a lot to say about the Jews. However, there have been people, you know, the Jews themselves will dig out things that he said privately. I remember of that uh, one of the, one of Hearst's papers attacked him, and he apparently had said to someone uh, in reference to that that Hearst's paper was just a Jew rag. And, of course, the immigration acts that he in the 20s that he was part and parcel of uh, getting passed were, you know, hostile to Jewish immigration. So he definitely was not a uh, not making friends with the Jews and they were not taking too kindly to him. That being said, um, Schreibner's, I mean, presumably was a, was a Jewish uh, publishing house. And, and you mentioned this debate between W E B Dubois and him. How did that go? Well, one thing I should say about that too, that's also kind of funny just in the context of what we're talking about with Asia, is that W.P. Webb, Webb, Webb Dubois, uh, the, you know, he was like proto, I mean, for people, I'm sure people probably, if you went to any system academies, you would have probably been proselytized about the great W.E.B. Dubois, but he, it was like the proto MLK. I mean, he was the, the one who was appealing to the sensibilities of the white liberals to, you know, basically just like turn over white institutions to, to Negroes because reasons, you know, uh, but W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, he actually met with Mao in like the late fifties before he ended up going to Africa. I think that's where he died, but yeah, it's kind of funny. You can put in a slide, you can put the uh, picture of him with Mao. The debate, uh, it went pretty poorly. I mean, it wasn't really a debate. It was more like a circus act really because, it was something that W.E.B. Du Bois constructed. I mean, he mm. set it up, and so it was basically in front of an entirely Negro audience. Oh, jeez. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny, too, because the debate that uh, Buckley did with Baldwin at Harvard, I believe, was uh, sort of the opposite of that, and all the whites sided with Baldwin. And so this is, you know, smash smash cuts of the 60s, not the 20s or whatever, whenever they were doing this. 1929, I'm saying this, uh, when the debate between W.E. Du Bois and Stoddard took place. By the 60s, I mean, the, the white people had basically been inculcated with this self-hatred so much that they they voted for the uh, the black Baldwin over the white Buckley debate. Yeah, I mean, he he mentions, I think, the book, uh, what is it, Souls of Colored Folk or whatever it is, the W.E.B. book. He, uh, he had presumably read it. Um, I don't, I, there's not really much for two men like that to talk about when all is said and done. I mean, he would have had a lot more to talk about with Booker T. Washington. 
who I think shared a lot of common uh, opinions as him. And, you know, Washington and uh, Du Bois were uh, basically rivals for the for Negro support in general. I mean, in somewhat analogous sense to MLK and uh, Malcolm X. Nick, I, I do have a question if you, uh, about, I guess, you would call it the revolt against civilization. I don't know if you're familiar with that yep, book yep, or not. Yep, yep, that's so, the book that uh, That's the book that introduced uh, the term Untermensch. Ah, uh, yes, yes, that's... So this is part of this popular mythology that uh, that somehow uh, the real the real Nazis in the in the 30s and 40s were actually America because America inspired Hitler. I don't know if you guys have seen. Yes. This. Oh, I've, I've seen that. Yeah, it's like the the racist contagion. I mean, it, it goes back what? to like you know America's original sin this of slavery so was so so virulent that it actually crossed the Atlantic. Hitler did not the well, Nazis. Not just that, like they come up with this entire complex that National Socialism was influenced by Andrew Jackson and like in Manifest Destiny. <laughs> Which like, OK, so there I was mean, clearly it's... some Prague influence, but it kind of, you know, went both ways. Yeah. I, I mean, there was could... a there's a clear right. lineage, though, from France to England to America and back to Germany as far as certain certain racial theories. Um, this is true. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's it's, true, but I. This is this is a kind of a weird tangent. I'm sorry, folks. I just this is like one of the common things you hear about Lothrop started. If you hear anything anymore, like every now and then, some I don't know, some Jewish writer for like the Daily Forward or whatever will write an article reminding you that this man existed, and he'll be like, this American, you know, or this guy, he he coined the term Untermensch, which of course we know that was a Nazi word. And I think that's all he's ever remembered for in like common yeah they'll call him a proto-nazi and the national review crowd is going to write about him too i I found some uh kevin williamson piece where he's they're doing the typical thing well like oh here's the here's the true racist legacy of progressivism you know arch arch progressive uh margaret sanger and her association with lothrop stoddard and therefore uh negroes are the real americans i guess so i mean did he use the conventional i have not actually read that work but did he use it in the same sense that uh you know uh the uh progenitors of the actual myth of the 20th century i would have understood the term uh yes more or less i I could i'm sure i have a quote here somewhere it's uh how does how does the underman look at civilization the civilization offers him few benefits and fewer hope, but usually affords him little beyond a meager sub- subsistence. It's it's just people who um, have been brought into the scope, the ambit of the civilization, who have no nothing to get, nothing to offer and only to take. This is the context in which he means it. And the internal, the the internal, I guess, racial decay uh, leading to a collapse of civilization would be. And not not just the color, it's just generally inferior people who should probably be sterilized would be his position. Well, let, let me ask. Just does to, does uh, Stoddard really? Well, I don't. Let me go really quick. But mm-hmm. does Stoddard really kind of pinpoint a specific culprit or a set of forces, or is he just sort of pointing out how things are in uh, developing? Is he just sort of studying and relaying information about the phenomena? Uh, I mean, it's, it's similar ideas that you would find in in other sort of not necessarily progressive, but right wing thinkers. I mean, it's just the process by which civilization leads to abundance and which leads to degeneracy, which leads to decay and collapse. 
So it's it's more like Evola than uh, well, it's Evola, it's Evola socialism. mixed with yeah, mixed with well, national. That's the thing about national socialism, though. National socialism is itself kind of a hybrid between certain idealistic racial doctrines and certain very materialist racial doctrines. So, you know, when I before I had Red started, I had assumed he was just kind of a. Uh, I guess a very materialist minded sort of racialist. Uh, but he actually has a lot to say about sort of the spiritual dimension of, uh, of, of, of race consciousness and of the nation. Uh, it's not, it's not entirely a biological process for him. It's, there's a lot more to it than that. I mean, for example, too, when he talks about what, what it is that the first world war did to European civilization, it wasn't just, you know, the immense waste of resources and the and waste of life, but it was also setting in motion a sort of a spiritual decay. It's kind of how his, how he would look at it. He probably had read people like Brooks Adams, you know. I mean, that that's something that would have been um, belonging to his time and education for sure. I, I actually could safely guarantee you he's read Brooks Adams, so it's probably coming some influences like that. I'm just trying to understand what 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 is the meaning of all this? I mean, I'm not trying to downplay it at all, but it's it, it goes without saying that these ideas have not been adopted by the powers that be. And you have to ask why. I mean, the the, the system that we live under has really nothing to do with outside of Asia perhaps. Uh really nothing to do with a a racial doctrine on a national level or international level is probably what he would argue for. Mm-hmm. And that, that just has not caught on. So I'm, I'm asking the question, why is that? Oh, it was more popular then than it is today, at least amongst the people who mattered. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, so, yeah, uh, the immigration act of 1924 was uh, something in vogue at the time. Also the, the Cooley well, and that was the, that was the, basically the, the product of Madison grant. I mean, Madison yeah. grant, and others basically made that happen. And that was something I was curious about was, you know, how deep was the relationship between Stoddard and Grant, if there really was one? That is a little complicated. So, so Grant wrote the introduction to the rising tide of color, uh, but they, they definitely had slightly different ways of looking at this. I think that that's a subject in of itself. I guess we could do one on Madison Grant and kind of compare and contrast from that. I don't know on the personal level uh, how close the relationship is, but I mean, he, certainly makes a lot of use of Grant's writing in, uh, in The Rising Tide. Yeah, because Grant really wasn't pinpointing culprits as much as he was just sort of laying out how bad it is and why it's bad, rather than kind of focusing on like, well, you know, there's here's who's doing this to you and here's their motivation. It's It was more of like, you know, this is kind of where we stand. And this is where things will be in ten years, twenty years, thirty years, so on. Yeah, it was. I, it was. You know, they they both seem to be more focused on just sort of like they're both very. Um, I would call them academics almost, and that they're just sort of very focused on describing the phenomena and trying to understand how it'll play out, rather than like always looking at yeah. the root causes or like or culprits behind the root causes. I don't even think it's 100% accurate to describe Stoddard as some, as for example, as a racial theorist. That's not exactly right. that, that, that you could absolutely say of Grant, but for Stoddard, it, 
he's just dealing with the facts on the table. I mean, he's, he's not even necessarily a hardcore racial determinist either. His, his, his whole point is it's the race question will play out in the context of the general world political situation. I mean, that it's the questions about colonialism, imperialism, the aftermath of the war, the relationships between European powers and this kind of thing. And that while this is all being hashed out, uh, you know, waiting outside the door is, you know, the coming of the the rise of the colored peoples. I mean, he was I mean, don't get me wrong. He was an unironic nordicist. <laughs> that is true. But that was, you know, common to his time. That's probably also why he was pretty well received in the Third Reich. Did he he kind of ran in a lot of these circles? Uh, we we covered this in our eugenics episode, um, where there was this uh, uh, clear bond between I think early twentieth century progressivism, as it was, which was really just uh, I, I think you would more likely just call it industrialism. Um, scientific industrialism was really what it was at its core at the time. And he kind of ran in some of those circles and he was particularly uh, kind of, um, I guess, enmeshed, if you want to use the word, in certain eugenicist societies. But as we kind of pointed out in that episode, a lot of these eugenicist societies, A, received incredible funding and uh, scholarship work from very respected people like Nobel Prize winners in various fields uh, were part of these organizations. And B, uh, they kind of tried to infuse um, scientific industrial politics and bettering man and fixing the problems with man, but also trying to alleviate certain things that were currently hurting man. Um, there were, you know, in particular, like the, some of the eugenic societies were focused on how to deal with industrial pollution because they had discovered around this time it was actually altering people's genes it was having a real genetic impact on people to deal with large amounts of of um, of industrial pollution and so on in the early 20th century so was his interest in these societies and in these fields just more academic and and much more focused on the science and the history rather than just oh, I hate black people kind of thing. Yeah, I, I don't even think it's fair to say that he hated the Negro. Right. And I think that's how he would be cast. I think that's how he's cast now. I think, honestly, like if you just look at his Wikipedia page, it's basically just... Just all incredibly this. brief. Right. It's, it's basically right. like, yeah, he was born there. He did some stuff. Uh, Undermensch, Webb Dubois... And uh, don't forget, like he wanted to exterminate all the uh, all the non-white white races uh, of the world, which is, yeah, it's it's can, a. Can you a even brief... see like the old edits on Wikipedia to see if this is like oh the, yeah like, the final yeah. cut? I mean, they, they didn't yeah, dude, hide that. From the uh, if you're if you're browsing Wikipedia on anything remotely uh, interesting or controversial, don't even read the page; just read the talk page. <laughs> And see what has the most uh, controversy behind it. I mean, I, I was trying to get to this, and you guys didn't have too much to say. But I, what I really want to understand is why does this worldview not have any place in our society? Okay, so like, there's the straw man that 
as soon as you start talking about differences between people, this is the classic prog projection. As soon as you start talking about differences between people, ipso facto, by noticing the difference, you are a exterminationist. And I mean, Stoddard is just like, you know, he's replete with that, like his central kind of motivating uh, metaphysic is that like there exist these different groups of people in these different places and they have these forces working upon them and like therefore they do this stuff and they get into conflict and it could come out this way or this other way and that's you know obviously a more realistic like more intellectually honest way to approach it than whatever i forget which tack we're on here that like we're all the same except for white people are uniquely evil somehow i think that's what we're going with now but i mean if you have even the uh the sort of rhetorical allowance for attempted objectivity then that's very uh that's very dangerous and not politically useful because you can no longer use these rhetorical cudgels um, to prevent people from asking certain questions um, or just like making objectively true statements that aren't handy for you. Yeah, this is OK. So if you were to look at what, you know, the mulatto was saying back then and you carry that through to the day, not much has changed. They, they've been doing the same thing and it's just they keep doing it. What changed was the American right. I mean, the fact that he's getting the similar kind of hit pieces from like the National Review that he would be from, you know, I don't know, insert you know, the, some the Jew Yorker or whatever, something like that. So you get this. They haven't changed their script, but the right has totally capitulated. And so. I mean, the main the main difference, I mean, he was just looking at the world, but everyone already understood this stuff. I mean, they understood he was he was to looking at race similar to maybe someone like Mackinder was looking at uh, land masses or something like this, right? He was just looking at the facts of the politi world political situation and understanding how this is potentially going to play out. And it's going to play out to the detriment of the white world. I mean, this was now to even point out that there is such a thing as, as a white uh, world, as white civilization, that is, you know, this is forbidden thinking to begin with. If, you're supposed to have some bizarre conception that mm -hmm. has no basis in reality. If you really wanted to do it, you could pull the uh, the whole, uh, you know, essentially the same maneuver that's done with the uh, the white replacement theory uh, that it's not happening. It's a conspiracy theory. Also, it's a, it's a great thing, and you deserve it. Like it would be very easy to recast a lot of uh, Stoddard's uh, analysis, not necessarily his prescriptions, obviously. Um, but you could do like a light rewrite and uh, stick it in the uh, the Atlantic with a uh, "Wow, isn't this great?" caveat, um, and you know nobody would bat an eye. Mm -hmm. Would would it be fair to say that this way of thinking has been effectively made illegal? Effect, especially after the Second World War, by the power structure, I mean that that to me is the simplest way to put it. You know, the association with Nazi Germany was was not inaccurate, and given that that has been deemed the 
the worst possible thing you could be in our modern civilization, the type of person that would be holding court with the chief propagandist of that regime probably is not going to be held up as a pinnacle of something that we should all strive for. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying this is a value judgment. This is just sort of a statement of observation of our current society. And I would, I would explain it that way. And not even, not even that he was associated with, uh, you know, this, uh, with Germany per se, but, you know, there had been a, uh, ideology that had completely replaced, like the, the Western states had a new ruling ideology as of 1946, 48 or so, like this idea of communism late, um, in the sort of guise of, uh, you know, what would later turn into neoliberalism. Uh, that's uh, avatars of old ideologies were actively purged with kind of, uh, you know, direct proportionality to how much they were in opposition to that ideology, not so much uh, how much they were associated with like racial thinking or whatever. But I mean, Robert Taft got purged uh, all the same. Um, you know that sort well, of was an overlapping. Yeah. It's much like how the end of the Civil War basically led to Reconstruction, which was effectively we're going to northernize the South under the Northerns, uh, Northerners' supremacy, and that's what happened after the Second World War. It was basically the Allies imposing their ideology upon the masses, and uh, but far, but far more so. I mean. You know, after the Civil War, it wasn't uh, 20 years, but that, uh, you know, the South sort of regained its uh, political freedom. And, you know, as of the time that Stoddard was writing in the 20s, mm-hmm. I mean, that's when a lot of these uh, Confederate monuments mm-hmm. were going up. Like, that's right. Well, because had... the, the KKK was basically forcing the, uh, the Washington's hand and basically saying, hey, look, you know, you need to you need to stop the discrimination against us, this this occupation of, of yours is not, not what we want. And they, that was well, the concession that they gave them. And it was like in, in like a lot of the twenties, uh, uh, the 50 year anniversary of the civil war, there were huge numbers of celebrations, um, which is like an odd thing to do for a, uh, a civil war. Um, but huge amounts of celebrations that were basically like, Oh, isn't it great that the North and the South, are all friends now and uh they had like very elderly veterans of mm-hmm. the the u.s of war shaking hands there's even some right. early video footage of it um but it was sort of a uh you know united as uh united as white men to secure the uh, the continent um type uh thinking which was much more um in line with stoddard's uh thinking but mm-hmm. that you know that ideological strain of uh manifest destiny that predated the civil war also postdated it like the u.s civil war weirdly enough it did not lead to a substantial kind of uh, ideological transformation of uh what america was for quote-unquote i mean it was obviously mm. a rejiggering of governmental arrangements mm, and I'm certain I'm elements of the power structure yeah. i mean i i mean that's at the point at which you can have people uh, uh 
people flying Confederate flags in the twenties talking about like, isn't it great that like we're all brothers now? I like, I don't, I don't see that as having the same, uh, the same level of ideological um, switch over as, you know, you look at something like the, you know, yeah, any yeah, of you, the you proto can't fascist have, you can't movements third, between 1935 and no, 55. Of, of course you can't have a third Reich, you know, flag flying in your front lawn today versus uh, the confederate flag but um the the war did change the united states i mean no question about it i mean the question of slavery was put to yeah, yeah, yeah. i mean the and the whole the blah debate would not even even happened uh in half the country um and, until that war was fought so right but in terms of like ideological like the ideological purpose of the united states government Mm -hmm. uh i mean there was there was an attempt you know the radical republicans to um presage the uh the later transformation that you know in the same way that the ussr rules in the name of the workers and peasants like there was an attempt to say the United States federal government like operates to advance the interests of the of the Negro, um, as they would have put it at the time, but I mean that was that was defunct almost immediately. Like within what? When did Reconstruction end? Like ten years after the end of the war. Uh, so, I mean that it was sort of an abortive. Um, attempt by some factions to kind of switch horses. But, I mean, World War II is the foundational myth of the current world order mm-hmm. worldwide. Right. Uh, even and even yet, in places like China, you know, if you want to oh, sure. bring it back to kind of the, oh, sure. uh, to that actual discussion, like their, their founding myth of their state is... Mao Zedong, the Long March, fighting the Japanese, the establishment of the uh, the People's Republic of China, um, which is all sort of in that same milieu. Like World War II was just such a drastic uh, ideological reconfiguration that somebody like Stoddard, who is operating into the old paradigm, um, you know, it's it's like it it wasn't wrong per se, but it had a not even wrong like he wasn't addressing he wasn't that that sort of thinking was not capable um at that time to like intellectually engage with uh the post-world war ii liberal state mm-hmm. the last thing it says in the wikipedia entry is after world war ii stoddard's theories were deemed too closely aligned with those of the nazis and so he suffered a large we're drop deemed. in popularity yeah he, the who, deemers deemed, deemed them. <laughs> Yeah, his death from cancer in 1950 went almost unreported despite his previously broad readership and influence. So citation needed. This is from Matthew Pratt and Guterri, The Color of Race in America, from Harvard Press. Yeah, what color is race? (laughs) Rainbows. Yeah, I I wonder. I never read anything that he wrote after 1945, but, I mean, so much of that. I mean, sure that the post-war liberal order, I mean, basically put the nail in that kind of thinking, you know, because he was coming, Stoddard's thinking is coming from, coming from class and coming from, you know, the elite. I mean, it now the only people are, you know, uh, crackpots on the internet, like talking about like long dead American racialists. So, 
I don't know. I mean, I guess I could close as Celine said about what happened there. It's what was it? The fall, the fall of Stalingrad is the finish of Europe. Uh, there was a cataclysm. The core of it all was Stalingrad. There you can say it was finished and well finished, the white civilization. Walking down Main Street, getting to know the concrete, looking for a purpose from a neon sign. I would meet you anywhere, Western sun meets the air, we'll hit the road, never looking behind. Yeah.